It is always really, for Marie and I, a, an incredible honor and privilege to be here with you, a place where we really do feel like home and our friendship with Tom and Dana. And I commend you because of your willingness to, you know, carve time out of your busy schedules. And when you do that, God gives you a promise through his word. He says, when you will carve time and come together and worship me, I will be present there. And you can have an expectation in your heart and your mind that whatever your point of need is, that may be different from my point of need, he will answer that. And if you'll lean in with a heart and a mind and a faith, wherever you're at and whatever's going on, God is here to meet that need. He was here before we got here. He welcomed us into this place. He's been waiting for you. Because all of us come here with needs. And the needs that we have today... Tomorrow, next week, I don't know how he'll answer them. I don't know when he'll answer them. But I do know one thing that we all need, and that is hope. If we have hope, whatever circumstances we're facing, we can navigate those circumstances. There's this great verse in Romans 15, 13, and it says this, May the God of hope. It's actually who he is. It's in his nature this idea of hope. He created hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. So no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you're facing, no matter what desires that are yet to be fulfilled, what hardships that you're just trying to get through, as you trust him, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, hope is not something you conjure up. It's not comes from reading 12 self-help books. Something divine takes place. God wants to do something divine this morning in you that you may not even have words to explain it, but you know it's real that the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may overflow with hope. And that last phrase really is kind of the bullet point of what I think he wants to share with us this morning. He wants to give you so much hope that you cannot contain it all. And that it flows out of you. And if you look around at society, society needs hope in almost every strata. And we need hope. And here's how Paul lines it out. The way that hope comes is not because you go into some super spiritual closet. It, it flows out of each of us to each other. There's this divine connection that goes and takes place. And for those of us who are here, including me, who need hope, hope rarely comes in isolation from other people. People who are alone rarely walk in hope. People who find the right people then are overflowing in hope. And we're going to study a story from the Old Testament that I'm so glad was in there because I think it's really cool that God said, I'm going to take the story of this young girl in her 20s, and one of my 66 books is all going to be about her. Her name was Ruth. And she is a story, a lesson on how do we walk in hope together. Now, to understand Ruth, you kind of got to know a little bit about the history. There was this lady named Naomi, and her and her husband were from Bethlehem. They were Jewish, but life in Bethlehem was really, really tough. It was a hard life. So they basically immigrated to another nation called Moab. They sold their property, they got rid of everything, and they moved over to Moab, and they really lived there. Some of you may have immigrated from another nation into America, and you make this your home. We know that Naomi and her husband made it their home because they had two sons, and they gave them Moabite names. And then these sons married Moabite girls, and they're living there in this other foreign land. And then tragedy strikes. 
Naomi's husband dies. Then the two sons die. And she's left as an elderly woman with very, very few options. She can't work. She doesn't have land from the past. They sold all of that. She's got, like, no options. She knows that maybe for the rest of her life, she's just going to kind of eke out an existence. And she calls these two daughter-in-laws together who are Moabites, and she basically says, go back to your families. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. Go back to your families. You'll be better served there. Now, the two daughter-in-laws know that it's really in Naomi's best interest if they go with her because they can work. They can provide an income. They can help her. They can support her. And yet here's this elderly woman at a point of great need speaking incredibly sacrificial to these two girls. One takes her advice and goes back to the family, but the other girl, the daughter-in-law named Ruth, is so impacted by this act of love, by this incredible act, that she actually has a conversion moment and decides to go with her. Here's what it says in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the declaration that Ruth made. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. Ruth gets hope because of the sacrificial act of Naomi. And the language in there means she literally makes this faith commitment to God. Hope is a choice that you make. And you make that choice because of the influence of people who are around you. And the choice that Ruth makes is a serious God-ordained choice. Something divine is happening. Hope is not optimism. Optimism sets its eyes on what is seen and a desire that circumstances will improve. And when circumstances improve, then your attitude improves. But hope is not optimism. Hope puts his eyes on what is not seen, on a kingdom that exists that may not be visible, but is centered in a king, Jesus Christ, and what he will do. Remember, the choice that Ruth is making in the natural is not going to make her life better. She is moving to danger. When they get there, a guy who owns a bunch of property says, you're in a scary place. I'm going to tell my workers not to harm you. She could get killed. She could get raped. She's a Moabite. She is the enemy. And yet she has all of this hope. Why? Because hope changes your outlook on life. Hope doesn't change your circumstances. It changes you. And it changes how you see things. But it starts with a choice that you make, a serious divine, godly choice based upon not what is seen, but what is unseen based upon the kingdom. And Ruth makes a commitment for life. Where you die, I will die. This is how I'm going to choose to live my life every day. Hebrews 10.23 says this, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. It's like God knew this was not going to be easy. And Hebrews says, you got to hang on to this. Every morning when you wake up, you have to make a commitment. I'm going to hang on to hope. you got to be around people who will help you hang on to hope. Because the world in which we live, this side of eternity, it's really easy to, for hope to fade away. 
I was in a country in Asia where everybody travels by train, so the trains are packed, and they're really older trains. And so I was on a train with another pastor, and it's so crowded that you don't have to hold on to anything. You just stand there, and you're surrounded by people, so you don't ever fall over because the people hold you up, you know? And we were on a journey, and I had to really get out and stretch a bit. So we stopped at one train stop, and I said, I'm going to get out, stretch my leg. So I got out, stretched my leg. A whole horde of people get on the train. And now the train's getting ready to leave, and I've got to get back on the train. There's no doors. There's just three metal steps to the doorway. There's two rails on the outside of the doorway. And as I go to go in the train car, it's packed full of people. And the only place available for me is the bottom stair of these three stairways leading to the train car. So I stand on the bottom stair, and I grab the outside of the rails. So I'm on the outside of the car, and the train car is going like 40, 50 miles an hour down this, you know, nature area. And I, I thought this is actually kind of cool because I'm looking at the ground behind me and I'm holding on. It's kind of fun, actually. It's kind of an adventure. No big deal. And then we went around a corner. And when we ran around the corner, the centrifugal force of the train going on the corner, the man on the step ahead of me falls into me. And he was a very large man. I mean, a really, really large, large guy. So I go from kind of, this is kind of fun adventure, to all of a sudden, I have the weight of almost 300 pounds on my chest. Now I'm really holding on. I'm going, oh God, do not let me go. And I turn and I look, and his face is like four inches from my face. And he's laughing. I've got this man just laughing, and I'm thinking... I find no humor in this situation as I'm just going, God, don't let me fall. Don't let me let go. And I thought, sometimes that's a picture of our life. We're holding on, and it kind of seems fun. And then this weight comes against us. You lose your job. You have a family member betray you. You experience the death of a loved one. You had a dream and it didn't come to pass how you thought. Now there's this weight and sometimes you almost feel like the weight is laughing at you. God knew that life this side of eternity wouldn't be easy. You've got to hold on to that hope. And it changes your outlook. And even when there's a weight, you have this joy and you have this peace. Ruth had it not in isolation. She had it because of Naomi. A person who probably maybe didn't even herself have a whole lot of hope, but was willing to speak life and hope into her. It changes your outlook. You hold unswervingly, but you don't do it in the natural. Remember Romans 15, 13? By the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a divine activity that God wants to have every morning with you when he says, today I'll help you hold on to hope. Today, I will give you the strength and the courage to hang on no matter what weight you're facing. So they get back to Bethlehem. Now, Ruth simply begins to do what she can do. Naomi can't work. She's old. So Ruth begins to work. Now, to understand what she's doing, you've got to understand one of the Old Testament laws, which was you glean the fields. If you owned property, you weren't allowed to harvest the edges of the property. So people who were poor could come and get some crop out of the edges of the property. So this is what Ruth is doing. She begins to go and just glean the fields because it's what's put before her in order to do. Hope is a choice you make, but hope is also an action that you take. You don't just sit passively. Ruth is not just sitting hoping things turn out, but she begins to be active. And here's how it's described in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. So Ruth entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. 
It just happened she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech, who is Naomi's husband. It just happened that Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. I want you to try to picture this. Ruth begins to go to this field. What she is doing looks really mundane. She's just doing what's set before her. Sometimes in life, it looks like what we're doing is really mundane. There's nothing to it. You're going, God, where are you? What are you doing? You're just kind of going through the motions. But she's doing it because she has this hope that she has. Hope is not just a choice you make. It's an action that you take because if you don't have hope, you become paralyzed. You lose your job, you don't have hope, why should I even fill out an application? There's no options. But when you have a hope that comes through the people that you know in your life, then you kind of take this action. Sometimes the action seems really mundane. But the story says she chooses a field that is owned by this guy named Boaz. And this guy named Boaz just happened to come by at the time. And he just happened to be the owner of the field at the time. This phrase, it just happened. Do you know what it teaches us? That when we are doing actions that seem really mundane, God is at work behind the scenes in ways we cannot imagine. Boaz becomes an inspiration to Ruth. The story goes along that Ruth becomes an inspiration to Boaz. Boaz can't believe. Here's a lady who's doing this. She's a Moabite. She's willing to glean and work like a poor person because of her mother-in-law. There's a hope that is being spread between the two of them, but it's based upon Ruth doing what seems to be very normal. One of the unique things about the whole book of Ruth, there's nothing supernatural that takes place. Nobody gets raised from the dead. No nature miracle. Everything seems very ordinary. Here's the deal. Oftentimes when we are doing the ordinary, God behind the scenes is doing the extraordinary. We just don't see it. And then you look back and you go, wow. Did you see what God was doing? In the middle of it. This is why hope becomes so important. It sustains us through what looks like very mundane activity when we know based on what is not seen, God is doing divine activity. I just don't know what it is, but I believe in who he is and what he's doing. We had a biological daughter, Rachel, and when she was a couple years old, we decided we we're going to expand our family, and Marie had two miscarriages, which is really difficult. Hope can quickly leave you when you have that kind of a situation. We felt like God had told us that it was time to, we could adopt, we could expand our family through adoption. We went to two different agencies in Chicago where we lived at the time, and they both turned us down. And hope can really leave you. Behind the scenes, God's activity. We're just going through the regular routine. We didn't quite know what we would do. Right around that time, I took my first trip to China. Now, see if you can follow the bouncing ball on this story, okay? I get a fax. This is how long ago it was. I get a fax from a ministry in Russia that works in Eastern Europe and has never been to China. They forward me a fax that they got from a Christian international person living in Beijing, China, asking them to come to China to do work. They have no idea how this guy got their number. They have no idea who this guy is. I just happened to be talking to this ministry that works in Russia the week before to the guy who got the fax. So he said, oh, Joel's going to China. He mentioned that last week. I'll forward the fax to him. I got the fax an hour before I got on a plane to China. I grab the facts, I stick it in the bottom of my suitcase, I get on a plane to China. First time there, I'm just traveling around for two weeks. 
just to learn about the country, talk to pastors, get a sense of what God may have me do there in China. At the end of the two weeks, I'm in Beijing. I have a late afternoon flight flying back to Chicago. But it's a national holiday. Everything is shut down. Nothing is open. I have nothing to do all day in my hotel room waiting to go to the airport. So I thought, I'll repack my suitcase. While I'm repacking my suitcase, literally the facts, which is crammed into the corner of the suitcase that I had forgotten about, falls out onto the floor. I lift it up and I go, oh, yeah, I was going to call this guy just to get some insight from his perspective. But it's a national holiday, and on the facts, the only phone number is his business number. I thought, I'll call, I'll leave him a voicemail. So I call his business number, and he answers the phone. You ever had anybody answer the phone, and you weren't expecting them to answer the phone? And you go, why are you answering the phone? And he has no idea who I am. He was on his way from one relative's house, because he's married to a Chinese lady, to another relative's house, and he happened to stop by his office for three minutes to pick up some documents. For some reason, when the phone rang, he didn't let it go to voicemail. He picked it up. And so I explained to him who I was, how I'd gotten his number. And I said, I just was hoping maybe to get 20 minutes of your time to get your perspective on China. He said, Joel, I'd love to be able to do that. But this is Beijing. It's a city of 25 million people. It's huge. Where's your hotel? I told him where my hotel was. It was right next door to his office. I literally walked out of my hotel, and I walked into his office. I sat down and began to talk to him. I discovered that he was there as an international lawyer specializing in adoptions. I told him our story. And on the spot, having known me for 15 minutes, he said, Joel, I can get you and your wife a child, and I will waive all of my legal fees because of the kind of work that you do. I got on a plane that afternoon. I flew back to Chicago. My wife met me at Chicago at the airport, parked by the curb, before there was these nasty little security people that would never let you park there. And I get into the car, and she's going to take off. I said, you can't take off. I said, i got to tell you this story. So I recounted the story to her from beginning to end. We held hands, and we prayed. And that was the day that our daughter Lisa was born in China. It just happened that I got a fax. It just happened that he was passing through his office. It just happened he picked up the phone, and it just happened that he's an international lawyer, and it just happened that we prayed. You get it? God wants you to live a it-just-happened life. And sometimes when we do the very mundane, the very ordinary, I go to work, I raise my kids, I go to a small group, behind the ordinary on our activity, is the extraordinary of God's activity. Hope is a choice that you make. But hope is an action that you take. Ruth does the ordinary. She meets this guy named Boaz. He is so impacted by her, his hope rises. She's impacted by him, her hope rises. And Boaz gives her a whole bunch of food. She takes this food back to Ruth and says, I met this guy named Boaz. And Ruth goes, he could be the guy. He could be the guy, and Ruth is kind of confused. What, what do you mean he could be the guy? Now, to understand what's happening, you have to understand two laws from the book of Deuteronomy. One law is called the kinsman redeemer law. That was a law that God put in established because he wanted people to own land as a symbol of the promised land. So if you as a family lost your land like Ruth and her husband had, somebody in your clan could buy that land back, but they couldn't buy it for themselves. They were buying it for you, and land was expensive. So there's not that many people who are going to do that. 
Then there's a second law in Deuteronomy called the Liveret Marriage Law. And that law was if you were married, but your husband died before giving you children, his brothers, and in that line, could marry you so you could have children to continue the law, land, the line that's there. But chances of that happening are really slim. Nobody's expecting that. But all of a sudden, Ruth goes, Boaz fits that. But realistically, who's going to do that kind of thing? Who's actually going to do that for us? How would that take place? Who's going to actually give up a lot of their money to buy land back? Naomi's too old to be married, can't have kids. Who's going to marry a Moabite? Pagan. Who's actually going to do that kind of stuff? But Ruth is in, uh, Naomi is inspiring Ruth with hope. He could be the guy. Naomi is actually speaking life and hope into Ruth. Ruth doesn't get the hope to act based upon her own isolation. It's the relationship. So here's what Ruth does. She goes out at night, and she basically proposes to Boaz, if you read the story, it's kind of funky language. She says, throw your garment over me. But she's actually saying, let's get married. Can you imagine this? Imagine if Ruth used like eHarmony.com to hook up. <laughs> Moabite pagan woman looking for honorable Jewish man. Must buy me land? Crabby mother-in-law included in the deal. <laughs> Not going to happen. Naomi inspires Ruth to act. And sometimes you act in a mundane way. And when you have true hope from heaven, sometimes you act in an outrageous way. What Ruth does is countercultural. What Ruth does is unheard of. Nobody does this. Sometimes when you have this hope and you're around the right people, they're going to speak life into you that will inspire you to make choices and actions that seem really outrageous. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Hope from heaven gives you a boldness. You see this throughout the scriptures. You see it especially in the New Testament with the role of women because they were so marginalized in the ancient world. There's a story about a woman who has this issue of bleeding because she's bleeding, she's unclean, she's not allowed to go into public, she's not allowed to touch anybody. And yet she has this hope in a Messiah. She finds out he's in town. So at great risk to her identity, to her family's identity, going completely against the law and culture, she goes out in public and she goes through a crowd touching people like she's not supposed to, just to touch the hem of his garment. Why? Because she knew her Bible and the prophet Malachi had this prophecy. When the Messiah comes, he will come with healing in his wings. And the word wings is literally a word for the tassels of a garment. Jesus' rabbi would wear a garment with tassels. And she's going, the prophet Malachi said the Messiah would have healing. I just got to touch those tassels. If I touch those tassels, I'm going to be healed. And she does the outrageous. Why? Because she had such a hope. What's the hope that you have that sometimes may lead you to do the mundane, but sometimes causes you to do the outrageous? Something that's countercultural, something that you would never ever think about doing. Because Hebrews 11.1 1 says this faith is being certain of what we hope for. Ruth knew what she was hoping for. 
Naomi instilled that hope in her so she could go and ask Boaz to marry her. What about you? I have a friend. And he had such a hope of how God could use him. In his 50s, he changed careers. Did the unthinkable. Was well-established, steady income. But a hope drew him to do the outrageous. Maria and I know this young couple. And I love God and I love family and they're building a family. And they decided, God, we're going to build our family by adopting kids who are in crisis. Nobody in their families has ever adopted before. Nobody in their families gets it. They all think this is really bizarre. They are doing what is outrageous in their family context. But for them, they have such a hope as to how God wants to build their family. They're doing that. I know a young guy, he's in his late 20s and he's got some really bad habits. And they're keeping him trapped in his mind and his soul. But he has such a hope that he can be delivered and healed that he does the outrageous and he sits in a group with a six or seven other men that he trusts. And he shares his bad habits. He does the outrageous because we don't do that. We hide our bad habits. But he has such a hope in a deliverer and somebody who can free him. Hope is a choice you make, but hope is an action that you take. And sometimes the action is mundane because you have a divine God at work, but sometimes the action is outrageous. And God tells you, I have such a hope in God as a provider. It's like John talked about during the offering and how He's going to provide for me. I'm going to do the outrageous. I'm actually going to begin to tithe. And for you, that may be unthinkable. Hope requires action. So here's Ruth. She proposes. She does the outrageous. And you think, this is the story. This is how it ends. Ruth makes this choice. Ruth takes this action. That's cool. But then the unthinkable happens, and it happens in our life all the time. Boaz says this to Ruth. I'm keen, but you're going to have to wait. Because there's another guy who actually, according to law, is more close to being in line for this role. And the ethical, integrous, honoring God thing to do is to go check out and see if he doesn't want this. And basically, he tells Ruth, you got to wait. And Ruth goes back to Naomi going, you can't believe this. I did it, and now I got to wait? And Naomi says this to Ruth. She says, wait, my daughter, till we find out what happened. She's putting hope into Ruth. Why? Because when you live by hope, waiting is a part of that experience. Hope is a choice you make. Hope is an action you take. But hope includes waiting. I hate waiting. I was in Ralph's. You guys have Ralph's here? I was in Ralph's in Southern California. And you know, they have the express lane, 10 items or less. I know our society is falling apart, but could we please just keep that one rule? <laughs> so I have like six items. So I get into the express lane because it's 10 items less. And the person in front of me has 14 items. I know because I counted them. <laughs> she gets rung up 14 items. My blood pressure's going up. I'm just really getting minty. This is... Don't, express lane. Then she does the unthinkable. She pulls out a checkbook. I thought, what are we in the 1980s? Who writes checks anymore? 
She's right, and I'm just, ah, I hate waiting. I get having to wait for people, but having to wait for God, when he can do anything at any time, and I have to wait for him, and yet through the scriptures, you see this theme of waiting. God created humanity, Adam and Eve, there's perfection, but then they decide they want to be God, and all of a sudden, sin and evil comes in and changes everything. God now has to redeem humanity, but through this whole storyline is waiting. He starts with a nation. He comes to Abraham. I'm going to give you a son, a promise. It took almost 30 years for that promise to be fulfilled. How long have you been waiting for a promise? Then there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They end up in captivity in Egypt. They need to be delivered. They wait 400 years for a deliverer. God raises up Moses. Now they're going to be delivered. They can enter the promised land. They get to the edge of the promised land, but fear and doubt take over. Now they got to wait another 40 years. They get into the promised land under Joshua. They split up the tribes. Now the Messiah will come. There's kings. There's prophets. It ends with the book of Malachi. When you open up Matthew, 400 more years have gone by. You can understand why when Jesus showed up, the disciples came to him. And they said, now? Now will you finally set up your kingdom? We've been waiting so long. Have you ever said that to Jesus yourself? Now? Now will you finally do it? I've been waiting so long. They come to Jesus. Now will you set up your kingdom? To which he says, no, you got to wait a little longer. He dies. He resurrects. They're waiting. He brings the spirit. The church is planted. You get to the book of Revelation. And here's the church. Lord, we're waiting. And today we have our hands to heaven going, Lord, we're waiting. And if you don't know what waiting is in the kingdom of God, it will mess you up. You will lose all your hope because you will define waiting like society defines waiting. I got to get through this till the answer's there. But in the kingdom of God, it's defined much differently in a way that actually brings us joy and peace, even when we're in the middle of the circumstance. You see, we have the wrong idea. In our idea, waiting is like when you go to the doctor. You ever been to a doctor? I went to the doctor a few months ago. I made a 2 o'clock appointment to go see the doctor. This information is meaningless to my doctor. She could care less what time the appointment is. Now, if you're a doctor, please forgive me. I don't mean to offend you. But my doctor actually has a room with a door and a title that says the waiting room. She knows we're going to be waiting. She has set a place for me to wait while I wait. And everybody's in the waiting room waiting and waiting and waiting. You know there's a doctor. You know they're doing something. People are getting help. Once in a while, the nurse pokes her head through the door and calls out a name, and everybody leans in. <gasps> My turn. She calls the person next to you, and you kind of slump back in your chair again, and you're waiting. This is what we think about waiting with God. We know there's a God. We know he's doing stuff. We hear other people talk about it. We're just waiting for him to finally call our name. And if this is how you see waiting, it will mess up your hope. There's a better understanding of waiting that comes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, To the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow in doing what He promised, the way some people understand slowness. But God is being patient with you. Did you know that waiting is a gift from heaven? 
Because when you wait, if you wait the right way, the Spirit of God who dwells in you transforms you. Transforms you into the image of Christ. Peace, faith, joy, strength. All these things that oftentimes don't come with ease, but come sometimes with trial and hardship. They get formed in you. And when you have experienced this, you know how great that formation is as much as you want the answer to your prayer. And listen, the Bible says, listen, God's wanting to see something greater formed in you than just the answer to your prayer. So he is bringing an answer. He knows your need. He knows your desire. He knew what Ruth wanted. He's going to bring it. But he actually has a greater desire for you. That you would rise above that. You would walk with a joy and a peace. That's why waiting is not just something we endure until an answer. It's how we live through our faith in victory. That's why the prophet Isaiah could say, They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. What? They that get their answer will... No, no. In waiting, you get stronger. In waiting, you find peace. And some of you are here this morning and you have a hope. But you got to understand, as much as a choice it is that you make, as much as an action of it, as it, you take, if you learn how to wait, knowing God is bringing the answer, but if you learn how to wait, He will transform you on the inside in such a glorious way. And here is what's so important about the story of Ruth. Not only does Naomi infuse Ruth with hope to wait, waiting is not the end of the story. And whatever you're waiting for, it is not the end of your story. Because Ruth and Boaz do marry. And they have a child named Obed, who is the grandfather of King David, from which the lineage of Jesus will come. Because hope is an answer that you receive. And the answer always happens on these two levels. Ruth and Boaz marry. She gets what she had been hoping for. She had no clue that her child would be the grandfather of King David, the lineage of which the Messiah would come. Ruth didn't know that. Some of the things that we see God do in our life, we have no clue this side of eternity how much more God's going to do through that. Parents, you love your kids, you pray for your kids, you work and serve and try to raise your kids, but we have no clue, our grandkids, our great-grandkids, until the other side of eternity, how God will use what you are seeding into them now. That's what hope is all about. On one level, you get what you need, your healing, your provision, the desires of your heart. It comes because you have this Father who loves you. But on another level, there's this whole other kingdom that's being established through you. The hope that came to the village, the hope that came to the nation of Israel, and the hope that came to the world through this 21-year-old girl. Hope is this amazing gift from God. I don't know what problem or situation, what desire or dream unfulfilled that you came here with. I don't know how God will answer it. I know he will. I don't know when. But I do know today he wants to give you hope. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here and join me. Go back to that verse, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope, it's who he is, 
He wants to put himself in you when we talk about hope. Not optimism. Something divine. Something by his spirit. Fill you with all joy and peace. If you're here this morning and there is a troubled heart, if there is an anxious mind over whatever it may be, his desire right now, this moment, is to do something divine and give you a joy and peace that passes all understanding. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may overflow with hope. Ruth teaches us that hope doesn't come isolated. She needed Naomi, Boaz needed her. It was the relationships in which hope flowed together. But they came through the power of God. I'm going to ask you to do a favor for me. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't want to miss a moment with Jesus. And as Pastor Tom said at the beginning, if you will trust, you don't have to understand, but if you will trust, Jesus, I'm trusting you. If you're here this morning, you'd say, Joel, I need hope. I need God to do something divine in me and to give me hope by the Holy Spirit. So much hope, I can't contain it. It'll flow out of me. If that's you, I'm just going to ask you to do one thing this morning, just as a statement, so I can pray for you and we can have this moment where God will be faithful to his word. If you'd say, Joel, I need hope for whatever it is, would you just stand to your feet? Just stand to your feet, wherever you're at right now. Go ahead. Don't hesitate. Yeah, thank you. You're standing before the Lord. You're asking him to do something in your heart and in your soul and your mind right now. And he's going to do it. You are trusting him. You realize you are out of control. And it's a really good place to be. Hope is a choice you make. By standing, you're making that choice. A divine choice. It's an action you take. It's time of waiting growing, but hope is an answer you receive. I'm going to pray for those of you who are standing right now. And I want you to just accept the work of the Spirit as He pours into you a peace, a joy, a rest. Lord, I thank you for each person who you have brought into this place. I thank you for their courage in standing before you. We are trusting you, Lord. In this moment, we are trusting you. You know every situation that is represented by those who are standing. You know the difficulties, the hardships. You know the tears. You know the lack, the unknown, Right now, in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I ask that you would pour hope into each person who is standing. Let there be an awareness of your presence. Let there be an awareness of your activity. Let there be an awareness of your grace and your goodness. Pour hope, not necessarily even understanding Jesus, just hope, just dump hope that peace and joy would reign in their hearts and their minds. Pour hope into them. 
for those of you who are standing, I want you to see yourself and whatever that is you're carrying, I want you to lift it up to heaven. Raise your hands right now physically to heaven. You are giving him that issue and now with empty hands you are able to receive the hope he wants to pour into you. You just give him thanks for that and let that hope be poured into you in the name of Christ. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for Ruth. We thank you that you died and resurrected, that you live today and because of that, every day we can choose hope you are our God who loves us. We choose to place our hope in you. Fill us that we would overflow in hope. Surround us with people who will speak hope into us, who we can speak hope into, Lord God, that we would walk in a hope. May none of us be isolated. Thank you for hope. Lord, for those who are here who have struggled with waiting, would you give them an anticipation of the glory that comes through waiting. A trust in you. We love you, Jesus.